Well, good morning and welcome. We are so glad to welcome you here to worship, whether you were here in person or watching at home on Facebook or YouTube. Thank you for joining us for worship here at Fort Street Presbyterian Church. My name is Sarah Logeman. It's been a few weeks. If you don't recognize me, it's because I have been out on parental leave. Our wonderful, fabulous daughter, Naima, is two and a half months old and is, I'm pretty sure, the cutest baby that has ever existed in the history of all of creation. Um, so if you have any interest in seeing photos, I might have one or 7,000 to share with you at some point. But thank you so much to all of you for allowing me the grace and the time to learn how to be a parent and to take some time with her at home. I'm so glad to be back. I know that my wonderful husband Garrett is excited to have some help again here, um, but I do want to say a thank you to him for all of the work that he has done both at home with us and here at Fort Street. I mentioned in an email to many of you that he not only kept the ship afloat, but helped to steer it in a wonderful direction while I was gone. And not only me, but Allison, our operation manager, two people out on parental leave at the same time. We did not time that very well, but life sort of works out like that. So thank you so much to Garrett and to the other staff and to the volunteers that have really taken on extra tasks in this time and been here with us. Yes, thank you. Bravo. <laughs> it is good to be back and it is good to worship with you on this first Sunday of Lent. We are entering this season where we get ready to come close to the mystery of Easter and we hope to engage with you in Lent in a variety of ways. We'll talk about some of those later, but know that this is a time when we can intentionally come together and to think about walking with Jesus. Hear now these call, the words for a call to worship. Let us worship God, for whom our souls thirst and our bodies long. Listen, listen, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. We have come to hear the word God has sent. God's word will not return empty, but will accomplish through us God's holy purpose. Let us worship God in spirit and truth. Amen.
Will you pray with me? God of compassion, you are slow to anger and full of loving kindness, welcoming sinners who return to you with honest hearts. Receive in your loving embrace all who come home to you. Seat them at your bountiful table of grace that with all your children they may feast with delight on all that satisfies the hungry heart. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. In this time of silence, please confess your hearts to God. Friends, the Lord God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Sisters and brothers in Christ, all God's promises are kept, and so hear the good news. Through Christ, our minds and hearts are cleansed, healed, and renewed. Amen. have a question for all of us, but especially for the kids that are here with us today. Does anybody have a favorite number? Do any of you kids have a favorite number? Raise your hand if you have a favorite number. What are they? Seven. That's a great number. What else? Any other favorites? Yeah? Nine. Okay. What else? Any others? Yeah? Which one? Oh, four. Awesome. Four also? Theo, is it because you're four years old now? That's a good reason, right? I love it. Well, did you know that the Bible seems to have some favorite numbers as well? There are numbers that show up over and over and over and over again in the Bible. One of those numbers is three. One of those numbers is seven. One of those numbers is 12. And one of those numbers that I want to talk about today is 40. A much bigger number than any of our favorite numbers so far. But the number 40 shows up so many times in the Bible. Certain things happen for 40 days and 40 nights or for 40 years or 40 times. Can anybody think of any of those experiences in the Bible, of any stories that have to do with the number 40? Does anyone remember any? Adults, you can help with this too. Lent is 40 days, exactly. 40, what was that? 
Oh, in the desert, a couple of times. There's, some, there's several desert stories that have to do with 40. There's Jesus in the desert for 40 days. There's the Israelites in the wilderness, the desert, for 40 years, right? Any others? Can anyone think of any others? This is a good pop quiz. You didn't know you'd have to study for today. Yeah, what else do you guys got? Why do you like seven? Oh, absolutely. The way it looks, that stylish slash, I love it. Good. Well, there are a few other 40 examples. I'm going to see if if you recognize some of these stories. There's the story of Jonah and the whale, and Jonah tells the people in the city of Nineveh, in 40 days, the Lord will destroy your city if you don't repent. There are other stories of Moses going up onto the mountain to Mount Sinai and meeting with God for 40 days. There's the story of Jesus, after being resurrected, meeting with his disciples for 40 days before going up to heaven. 40 is all over the Bible. Yeah, what else? The f- That's right. So two, two instances of 40 with the flood. That's a great question. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and then once the mountaintops showed themselves, Noah waited 40 days before he sent out the bird. So there's 40 in that story twice. Well, 40 is also the number of days that we celebrate as we get ready for Easter through the season called Lent. And we're in this season right now. This is the first Sunday of Lent, and we wear the color purple in Lent. We put purple up in our sanctuary to remind us that it's a time for getting ready. And so for these 40 days, we walk with Jesus and we remember who Jesus was as we get ready to hear the story once again of his death and his resurrection. We're glad that you are joining us for this journey of 40 days of Lent, and you might have seen some of these crosses made out of the leaves of a palm branch, and we invite you to take one with you to remember the season of Lent if you would like to get one. There's some in a basket in the back, or you can come get these up on the table. But I want you to look as you, as you leave today, if you'd like to come up this way, there are 40 of these crosses up on this table. So you can look at the number out on the table and think this is one of the Bible's favorite numbers, and these 40 days of Lent will help us get ready to come close to the mystery of Easter. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for all of the stories in the Bible and for the number 40. In 40 days or 40 years, a lot can happen, and we can come closer to you. Lord, thank you for this time of Lent, and be with us as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.
Our first scripture text this morning comes from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Listen for the word of God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Our second text comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 7, 11, and 17 through 21. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. After hiding from God in the garden, God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? To the man, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife, and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for your word. I pray that as we consider it today, you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear the message that you have for us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I want you to picture for just a moment a sports banquet for a kid's sports team. Perhaps you've been to some of these in your life. The scene usually looks something like this. There are children, team members, and then siblings, and parents, caregivers, grandparents, loved ones, all crammed into some kind of back room in a restaurant, usually, or maybe if it's nice out under a picnic shelter in a park. There's often boxes and boxes of pizza around, and there's sticky floors full of juice and soda pop. And at the front, there's always a table full of trophies. 
The trophies have the names of all of the kids on the team on them, and there's a moment in the banquet when they are awarded one by one to the kids. Well, my brother and I grew up going to and participating in many of these award banquets. We played just about every sport there was in every season, and so by the time my childhood was over, I probably went to two dozen of these sports banquets. Well, at least since the late 80s, early 90s, the thinking is that every single kid gets an award. Everyone gets a trophy. And the coaches will often get together and they'll come up with lists of superlatives for each of the kids so that as they're awarded their trophy, they get some sort of title. The best team player, the most aggressive player, the best three-point shooter, the most improved, and on and on and on until everyone gets an award. Well, when I was eight or nine years old, I was on this fantastic basketball team called the Dudettes. How threatening is that team name? And we had an award banquet at the end of our season, and I was devastated at the superlative my coaches gave me when they handed me the trophy. Kindest player. Now, I knew I was no basketball star. There was no way I was going to get best defender or best three-point shooter or even decent shooter at all award, but kind? It kind of felt like a throwaway award, like the coaches couldn't think of anything better, and so they just said, well, she's nice. We'll, we'll give her the kindness award. It made me feel like maybe I'd been a little bit of a pushover out on the basketball court. Kindness is not valued very much in our society, is it? It's often equated with weakness, or at the very least, it's thought of as kind of a childish value. When we think of kindness, we associate it with just being nice. The world tells us that kindness is good, but only to a point. Kindness is good until it gets in the way of progress or achievement or true leadership. If we're honest, most of us would rather get the most aggressive award than the most kind award. Well, we're in the midst of this series talking about this text from Micah chapter 6 that asks, what does the Lord require? Or as Pastor Garrett put it, what does love require? And today's focus is on the second part of the answer to that question. The Lord requires that we love kindness. I must admit that I was affected by the general apathy our world has toward kindness when we mapped out the sermon series and I realized that this would be the part of the text we were on for my first Sunday back. I thought, kindness? That's sort of boring. Can't I preach on fire and brimstone instead or something? And Garrett said, no, we're Presbyterians. We don't do that anyway. But like so often happens with Scripture, the more I sat with this text, the more I prayed about it, the more I learned about it, the less boring it became. Remember, Micah is speaking here to a group of God's people who are about to be conquered. 
They're about to be taken over by the Assyrian Empire and then later by the Babylonian Empire, and their whole world is about to be destroyed. Their homes, the temple where they worship, everything is going to be gone. And it's with these events on the horizon that they are reminded that God requires that they love kindness. I can imagine that in a time like that, the command to love kindness was probably met with the same sort of anticlimactic annoyance that I felt at getting the award for kindest player. We know from earlier in the text of Micah that the people would have rather had some sort of transactional requirement that they could check off their list to provide an unblemished ram or to offer up to God burnt offerings or to pour out olive oil. If we know that these are the things that are required, we can do them and then get along with our day. But instead, the repentance we are called to requires more of us. It requires transformation and not just transaction. You may notice that this part of Micah 6.8 is translated in a variety of ways. Some translations of the Bible say love kindness. Other translations say love mercy. Some even say love loyalty. The rest of the verse stays pretty much the same, but the wording of this second requirement is sort of all over the map. And the reason is that it is translated from this beautifully complex Hebrew word. A word that doesn't really have an English equivalent. Now you won't often hear me preaching on Greek and Hebrew word meanings. I think it's usually unnecessary and sort of pretentious, but this one is revealing. So if I only get one sermon a year to speak about original language translation, I play that card right now. That's how important this word is. The Hebrew word hesed has no direct English counterpart. It means kindness, but more than that. It means mercy, but more than that. It means loyalty, but more. It means steadfastness, but more. It means un wavering devotion, commitment, but even more. Its true meaning is actually more like a combination of all of those words, a lovingly loyal and kind mercy that is steadfast and does not waver. My Hebrew professor in seminary told us that every time we translated that word, we should use a different combination of those words, because there's no way to really just capture it with one English word. Hesed is a complex and beautiful statement of loving kindness. This word, hesed, is used all over the Old Testament, and the way that it's used the most is to describe the kind of love that God has for us. It starts on the mountain in Exodus 34 when God is revealing God's self to Moses. The text says, The Lord passed before Moses and said, I am God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, even to the thousandth generation. 
God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, kindness, mercy, faithfulness, unwavering devotion. And scripture points to proof of God's hesed for humanity over and over again as God loves and cares for those who are hard to love and quite honestly don't always deserve to be loved. One of my favorite examples of God's hesed comes from the simple moment in Genesis chapter 3 that we just read. It's a one-liner that we often just blow right past, but it comes after Adam and Eve are in the garden and have disobeyed the command to not eat from the tree. They've hidden from the Lord in the garden and are trying to shift blame. But God sees Adam and Eve. He sees that they feel shame as they're aware for the first time that they are naked. And so, responding with hesed, God makes clothing for them out of skins. What a beautiful kind of radical kindness for two undeserving people who God just loves anyway. How telling is it that we don't have an English equivalent for the word hesed? In fact, did you know that 62% of adjectives in the English language are negative? Our words reflect our values. And we live in a culture that loves aggression and power and negativity and meanness above kindness and mercy. We live in a world that elects power-hungry bullies to political office. We live in a world where there's pushback for saying black lives matter. We live in a world where quite often you're more likely to get the job, get the girl, get the promotion, get the award if you show aggression than if you show loyalty. To love hesed, to love kindness, is radical. It isn't just nice. Kindness in this sense is strong and sacrificial. It means not only that we are kind, but that we cherish kindness. That we lift it up wherever we see it. That we allow ourselves to be inconvenienced by it, and that we elect it to office that we celebrate it when our children do it, that we put it above achievement or aggression in award ceremonies. As it turns out, loving kindness is actually directly related to doing justice. This challenge from Micah chapter 6, chapter six contains the three commands to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, but I think then rather than three separate requirements, they're actually tied together. Our mission is to do justice in the name of the Lord. And the way we are to go about that is with loving kindness, with hesed. If justice is our mission, then loving kindness is our core value. It's the way in which we go about doing the mission. It's harder than it sounds. Many of us would rather fix someone than treat them with loving kindness, wouldn't we? Our attitude is often, I'll do the justice, God can do the loving. 
But Jesus shows us that kindness and justice are wound together. And that wound together nature usually means that human beings are involved. Real, imperfect, annoying, unlovable human beings. Just as Garrett spoke about last week, it's like Jesus healing the demanding man with leprosy, even though he was an interruption to the plans that Jesus already had. I think that many liberal-leaning Protestant Christians often struggle with something I call justice from a distance. I know that this is certainly something I wrestle with, and those who struggle with justice from a distance believe wholeheartedly in supporting issues of justice, but they tend to keep the issues at arm's length whether they mean to or not, whether they notice or not. Maybe they stay at home and write a check. Maybe they use the internet to advocate, but always stay behind a screen. Maybe they spend copious amounts of time learning about an issue rather than doing anything about it. Now hear me say that those are good things. We need checks and we need advocacy online and we need to learn, but are we stopping there? Justice from a distance is impersonal justice. It comes from our heads and leaves out our hearts. It's missing something, a kind of wholehearted perseverance that's willing to sacrifice. It's missing hesed. Last week, Pastor Garrett told the wonderful story about Malcolm X standing outside churches on Sunday mornings and engaging the worshipers as they came out of the service. He'd say something like, you've spent so much time in that building, worshiping, and claiming that you love justice, but what now? Now that you've walked out that doors, how are you going to show that? I hope that challenge stuck with you as much as it did with me, and today's requirement takes it even a step further. Are you approaching that justice with your whole self and a sense of loving kindness for all? God has shown us the way. God loves you with steadfast said. Now go and do justice. And go about that justice with unrelenting mercy and strong kindness. Would you pray with me? Holy God, you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness and mercy. Lord, through your example, we ask that you would empower us to show the same kind of kindness to those that we encounter. Lord, give us hands and feet to do justice, to serve others, and a heart to do it with the same kind of loving kindness that you show us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen.
We're going to move into a time uh, for prayers of the people, and I invite you, as we do every week, uh, at the end we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together, and when we come to that tricky part where we say debts or trespasses or sins or maybe you have a different way, I just want you to know there's no wrong way uh, to pray. So say it how you know it, and um, yeah, will you join with me? Gracious God, you led your people through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Guide us that following Jesus, we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. God, we are thankful for the reminders of redemption visible around us, and we are thankful for the prodding to not do justice at a distance, but to do it up close with a certain kind of kindness. God, we ask that you make us ever more aware of ourselves and your loving kindness around us. As the source of the world's hope, oh God, we ask that you would hear our prayers on behalf of all creation on behalf of the world, on behalf of our nation, on behalf of the church, and on behalf of those with unspoken and unmet needs. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
We have just a couple of announcements to share with you this morning. First, I would like to thank our guest musician, Forrest Howell. Thank you so much for being with us today and helping us to worship through music and song. Also wanted to let you know that we will have a virtual coffee hour immediately following the service on Zoom, so look for those links and please join us if you are able. So it's the season of Lent, as we talked about earlier, and for many of us, we give up things or we pick up things, and I just want to share a little bit about how that's going in my own life. Uh, so I, I gave up chocolate, which I, I talked about uh, last week, um, and we have, my wife has a, a sweet tooth, to uh, put it lightly, <laughs> and we had these cookies that were just kind of laying out that had chocolate in them, and I reached into the bag this week and I took a bite out of one and like halfway through the bite, I was like, oh gosh, <laughs> I just broke my Lenten vow to God, to the people, like, all of these like things. Like one day in. Yeah, <laughs> one day in, I mean, I didn't even last that long, but they were out and it was, it was just such a reaction. I, I saw the cookies, I wanted the cookies, I took the cookies, I ate. And um, I, I, I share that to kind of show you my, my shame a little bit, but to also say, it's not about perfection. So many of you may have committed to something and maybe you forgot that you committed and you're being reminded right now as I talk to you about it. Uh, and, and I wanna say that that's okay. It's okay to, uh, to start again. It's okay to have that little um, mess up. And so I would encourage you, if you have not dedicated yourself to giving up something, do it and lean into it. Maybe it's something that you have wanted to give up. Maybe it's something you've been thinking, gosh, I need, to, I need to make that change in my life. Lent is such a great time to lean into it because you're, you're doing it for God. You're also kind of doing it for yourself. And so we're I all will, on this journey together. I yeah. will say too, he did put the cookie back once he realized. <laughs> and later that day, I found a cookie with a bite mark out of it and was slightly concerned that it came from that way at yeah. the store. But so yeah. he, once he realized, he did, he did repent and turn, yeah, yeah. turn around. She called me out for it too. She said... She said, so that, that chocolate cookie in there that has a bite out of it, you, you know anything about that? I do, I do. Uh, w one of the other things that we're doing for Lent is uh, writing with Peter, writing the Word. And so I have dedicated myself to writing out the books of First and Second Peter, and I'm inviting you to do that with me. Uh, if you would like, I have outlined every verse of every day that I'm going to handwrite out. So if you'd like to join me in that, uh, let me know and I can send you that information. I believe that Amy actually sent it out in the newsletter as well. Uh, but that's something we're doing as well that we're trying to do in community. So I know, I know Sarah's doing it, um, I'm doing it, and it's, it's been really, really great so far. One of the things I learned about First Peter this week that I did not know is that he, he's speaking to a group of Christians and he's calling them strangers. And he talks about strangers being in a strange land. And, you know, that's language taken from uh, the Israelites when they were exiles, but he's applying it to Christians. And I thought, wow, how appropriate for us today. Because sometimes as a Christian, I know uh, the, the values and the principles that I take from the Bible, they make me feel like a stranger in America today. And so I, I think that these letters are relevant um, for us in this moment. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't given anything up for Lent, find something. And if you haven't picked anything up for Lent, look for something to pick up. Now before we go, hear this blessing. May we be people who do justice up close this week. As we leave the four walls of this sanctuary, may we be looking for ways to do justice 
with loving kindness that is strong. Go now in the name of God, and may our light so shine and our joy be so obvious that all who see us may come to praise God. Amen. Amen.